I was just thinking about that. It reminded me of the words of the songwriter when he wrote this line, Here, in the grace of God, we stand. Ray mentioned the grace of God. We are nothing without it. But it's that standing which I love, that we can stand in the presence of God because his grace has invited us in. Now, what we find in these, this sort of change and shift in thought is that the apostle now leads his readers from exposition, which is in chapters 1 to 3, into exhortation, words of encouragement, words of, come on guys, let's live what I've just taught you. And that's exhortation in the rest of the letter. It's from doctrine to duty, from mind-blowing theology to everyday living, from what God has done for us to what we must do for him in response and amongst each other as a church. Now remember this, Paul's letter is classed as one of his prison letters. Paul at this time of writing is in chains. He is under house arrest and what we read at the beginning of these verses is that Paul pleads, the word pleads here is strong, he is begging for these believers in Ephesus to live their lives worthy of their calling. In the first three chapters, he has spoken about their calling and has spoken about what God has done for them in his grace and in his mercy. Now he is pleading that they live worthy of their calling, not so that God will love them, but because God loves them. It's the response to the love of God that we find here. Now, bearing this in mind, there are two things that Paul focuses on in these 60 verses. Two words. The first is unity, and the second is diversity. Unity, which speaks of how the church should operate and grow and become mature together and treat each other. And then the word diversity is in connection with the gifts that God has given to the members of the church. And Paul says that the whole basis of this, what underpins this unity and diversity of gifts, is love. How true that is. The love of God. In the previous chapter, if you can cast your minds back, Paul prayed that these believers may be rooted and grounded, their lives firmly placed in the love of God. Now his appeal is to see that they live lives of love. Do you see the difference? We come from theology to teaching and exaltation and encouragement. Now you've learned it, now do it. Let's put this all into practice. It's all about exhibiting and demonstrating the love of God. It's great to stand in awesome wonder of his majesty. It's great to sit in his presence, but there are times when we need to put feet onto that. Get out there and live what we have been taught. Let's show this love. It shouldn't just be in words only. I must tell you, Ray hinted that, I'm sure he said, married for 57 years? Well, that's remarkable. I must tell you that this year marks Pauline, that's my wife, that's her name, and my 35 years of marriage. And on the date in June, it's not June, it's in May. Don't ever forget. If you're in trouble, Ray, it's close to June. It's the end of May, isn't it? Yeah. What year was it? No, forget that. Deep, deep trouble. 
on the day, whenever that is, <laughs> I'll check the calendar. I'm sure it's in big letters, do not forget. Well, on the day, if I just said to Pauline, Pauline, thank you for 35 wonderful years. It's been great. great. Married for 35, I love you. Great. What a landmark. Now, I'm sure she would think, oh, that's nice, but it won't be good enough. Words alone aren't good enough, are they? I think what would put a real smile on her face is an absolute demonstration of that love. So if I were to say, Pauline, I love you, thank you for 35 years, here <laughs> is a bunch of flowers just to say how much I love you and I'm grateful for you. She's smiling already, and she will be reminding me of the date and my promise. Now that's good, but do you want a better one than that? Here's a better one. Because... God loved the world. He told us that. That's wonderful. And he gave his son. Do you see the difference? Words are great, but not enough. When comes the action? Wow. That makes all the difference. And that's what Paul's stressing to these believers in Ephesus. In their struggles lives, he is saying, I've taught you about the love of God. You've learned about the grace of God. Now let's put it into practice. Now, Paul stresses unity in particular. And although there are these two thoughts, unity and diversity, unity fills this whole group of verses. And Paul is stressing here that Christian conduct and character will be the evidence of this love. And he hits on, if you took notice of our reading, six areas. And there are three couplets. He spoke about lowliness and meekness. He then spoke about patience and forbearance. And then he spoke about peace, uh, love, the bonds of peace, love and peace. There are three couplets there. And you will recognize that this is taken from the fruits of the Spirit, which he shared with other churches, of course. You will recognize that. Now, when we come to lowliness and meekness that the Apostle writes about, it's humility. It really is full of that. These qualities were not popular in the ancient world. Nobody wanted to know about being lowly and being meek. In the ancient world, the days in which Paul was living and the days in which these believers were living, they were difficult days. It was very much a survival of the fittest. It was very much dog-eat-dog. It, it would be very much that the strong stand tall. Who wants to be lowly? But Paul is stressing, if we are to maintain unity in the church, we need to practice and live lowly lives and we need to be meek in our lives towards each other what is it to be lowly okay here's an idea for you it's all about recognizing the worth and the value in other people and think about the quietest person in your church think about that person sat down quietly it's thinking the best about them and bringing the best out of them when it comes to meekness we mustn't mistake that word for the word weakness. In fact, it's the exact opposite to that. Here's a definition for the word meekness, and I love this, and I didn't make it up, and it's not mine. I found this, and I want to share it with you. Meekness is the gentleness of the strong. I think that's absolutely amazing. It's like being the master of yourself and the servant of all. A great man of God back in the day by the name of Oswald Chambers, he wrote this. We serve God by being the servant of other people. That's the proof. That's living it out. That's putting feet on all that we've enjoyed of Paul's teaching so far through this lovely letter. 
And of course, these two qualities were found in absolute perfect harmony in the life of Jesus, who was meek and he was lowly. But think about the strength of his character. Wonderful. The second couplet is patience and forbearance. And it's another natural pair. They go hand in hand. They really do. And to be patient and to be forbearing, it's almost like having a generous heart, a really generous heart that wants to give and not stop, but carry on giving. We're so good at receiving, aren't we? We're so good at taking from other people. This is all about giving of ourselves. It's all about forgiving each other. It's about making an allowance for each other's faults. Remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he actually wrote, remember, love underpins all of this, and he wrote the words, love is patient. Now, the final couplet is love and peace. Love is the final quality, but nonetheless in power. And this is what Paul is stressing, because love, he's telling us, it actually embraces and holds together all these other qualities, and then they are all held in the bond of peace. If we want to maintain unity, as Paul stresses in this letter, it's all about showing forbearance towards each other, being patient with each other, being lowly and humble in our character, living lives of love, and having it all held in the bonds of peace. This, Paul is assuring the church, will not only create, but it will maintain unity to keep the church together and to move them forwards. That was important in his day. If we could ask ourselves the question, why? Why should we live like this? What should motivate us? We've spoken about it all evening. It's all about the grace of God. And we have to admit it tonight. We are only here because of the grace of God. That's why we gather. We're only together because of the grace of God. We break bread because of the grace of God. We've been invited in, and God has invited us out of his grace and love. Then we go on to the next few verses, verses 4 to 6. The apostle then gives this very, very clear description of this common unity. So we've thought about unity already, but then he actually outlines this common unity, and they are greater than any potential difference that might divide us or set us apart. And Paul writes these wonderful things um, in, in these verses. There is one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all. And he makes it so clear and outlines this common unity. It's almost as if Paul is saying, guys, look. Look at what you have in common. And that will help to maintain unity together. You know, we are different people. We, we will think differently. Our approach to life and activities in the church will be different. But underneath all of this, we have this wonderful common unity. And I think right at the top of that list is we know that we have one Lord. That says enough for me. Going to the next set of verses, verses 7 through to 10. We are moving into this area of diversity, striving for unity and yet accepting the diversity of gifts within the church. That's the basis of, of, of our unity and our life together. 
And if we could again ask that question, what is the basis for this, these spiritual gifts? It's back to that one thought. It's all about the grace of God. Grace being defined as the free, unmerited giving of God. I was always taught from my, my young years, I can say that now, my young years, that grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God holding back from us what we do deserve. Just a thought for you. And then Paul actually tells us in these verses, I find it really interesting, this bit. He tells us when this giving actually happened, a specific time. And he spoke in these verses, it all happened when he ascended on high. Now, there are two thoughts that the apostle brings here. The first of all, first thought of all, is he ascended from the lowest parts of the earth. Well, that is a wonderful reference to Jesus' resurrection. And we have thought about that this evening. Jesus died. He was buried. And then he rose again from the lowest parts of the earth. That's the first thought. The apostle doesn't finish there. He goes on to say, and he ascended far above the heavens. So if the first, first thought is his resurrection, this thought is about his ascension into glory. So this ascension is really, really important. And just out of a point of interest, can I just remind you that there are three heavens. There is the atmospheric heaven. It's the air that we breathe. Jesus ascended higher than that. And the second heaven is commonly called the stellar heaven. It's where the stars are, the planets, the solar systems. Jesus ascended far above that into the third heaven, the heaven of heavens, God's dwelling place. Because remember, God is outside of time. God looks down upon his creation. And Jesus, we're told, ascended higher than that and now takes his rightful place at the right-hand side of God. Now, the point that Paul is making, that's just out of interest, but the point that Paul is making is when he ascended, only then could the Holy Spirit come, the Comforter could come and fill and empower the lives of the disciples. And at this time is when the gifts were given. And so verses 11 to 12, we read, he then gave gifts to men. Now, what's really interesting here is that the only offices that are mentioned, they're not all mentioned, not all gifts in the church, but just the offices of spiritual leadership. Now, this could be due to the fact that in the Ephesian church, there may have been problems here. There may have been issues. They needed to get their leadership right and in place before the church could really come together, united and in maturity and grow together. It could be that. We don't really know. But the thought there is, if church leadership could show this wonderful unity that the apostle has written about, then there would be hope for the rest of the church. We always say that, don't we? The buck stops here. It starts at the top. It starts with the leadership. If there's good leadership in the church, if there's good direction, if it's godly, and if it's for the benefit of the church, it will work and it will filter down into the lives of the congregation. That is the way of church life, and it really does make a difference. Secondly, notice this. In verse 11, that these gifts were not man-made. It tells us specifically, Paul makes the point, it was he, as in Jesus, 
who gave these gifts. In other words, it was by divine appointment. Now, Paul then briefly mentions these gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. Now, there are five there, but actually it's four offices. Pastor, teachers are coupled together. It is one gift in the church. But he focuses more on their purpose within the church. As they, apostles, lead the church, as they, the prophets, speak for God's word, as they, the evangelists, lead others to Christ and bring others in, and as they, the pastor teachers, teach and shepherd the flock, then it is to benefit the people of God so that they will be prepared. Or another word for prepared is equipped. And if you want to know where that word equipped is, read your statement of faith as a church. I took notice of it this morning when it was up on the screen. It mentions about being equipped as a people of God. And the purpose is that we might be ready, prepared to serve God and have our faith built up. Then Paul outlines in the last few verses what this looks like in our lives and in the church. And of course, in particular, in the church at Ephesus. Verses 13 through to the end. There's a lot to get through tonight, so I apologize if I've had to rush a little bit. But the first point is this, the purpose of these gifts, the purpose of all this unity that he's trying to encourage amongst the believers is that we all come to the unity of the faith. We read about that common unity, didn't we? We've talked about godly character creating unity. We've talked about these gifted offices, equipping God's people, all of us together, moving together as one. That's the unity that Paul is encouraging in the lives of these young Christians. And then he goes on to talk about that you all come to a knowledge of the Son. Now, this knowledge isn't just a head knowledge. It's not like studying. It's not like reading and trying to remember and trying to learn. This knowledge of the Son is a living, dynamic vibrant knowledge of the Son. It's knowing God personally. It talks about greater intimacy and a greater, deeper experience of God. And then he writes about that we all become mature together in this unity. And maturity is important because it leads to stability in our faith. And we need that in days that are changing, a world that is changing, a culture that is changing, we need absolute stability in our faith. That's what becoming mature is all about. It's not just having the desire to grow old in Christ, and I pray that we all do, that we all get there, but it's also growing mature in him. And then he says that you don't stay as children, no longer children going from one thing to another. I'm sure many of you have got grandchildren. We have got a third on the way. And my experience of my two young grandsons is how they will flip from one activity to the other. You try to concentrate their efforts for five minutes, and that's if you're lucky. Then it's on to the next toy. It's on to the next thing. Children will always go from one activity to the other. It's always that way. And so the apostle says, we want you to get to a point where you are no longer children, tossed to or fro from one thing to another, being led astray. Paul warns the Ephesians, doesn't he, about these deceivers in the world who try to come in and infiltrate these churches using trickery and cunning and craftiness and subtleties. 
of talking about being grounded in the truth of God. No longer children, but recognizing what is truth and what is false. When I thought about that, it reminded me of my brother. When he finished university, he started his working life in the bank. And when he joined the bank, his bank manager said, right, Derek, first thing you need to know is how to recognize a false banknote. And my brother was absolutely lost. How do you do that? And he said, you only recognize the false by really getting to know what is real. And he was made to study real banknotes, what they look like. And then he would spot something false, something deceptive a mile away. Great learning. He's never forgotten that. When we recognize what is false, it will so stand out because we are firm and stable in our faith that we will recognize it for what it is. And then the apostle goes on with this lovely statement, speaking the truth to one another. Well, that's great. That's all about unity. That's about how we relate to each other. But the thought is deeper than that. It's more in connection with how we deal with these deceivers. These people who claim to have the truth, but they're not of God. And we are to deal with them, as the apostle writes, in love. So it's not a case of saying, get away, slam the door in their face. We're Christians. Let's love these people. I remember my father when I was little. And I still remember, and I wasn't that little, as I thought what was going on. And I remember he invited some Jehovah's Witnesses into the house. And I thought, wow, this could be interesting. Knew about that. And he was so courteous. He invited them in and saying, come on, come and sit down. Would you like a cup of tea? And he was so gentle. Now, my father was not a gentle man. But it was like this with them. And I know it wasn't put on. He was treating them in love. He was being respectful to them. And when they sat down, bang! He hit them with the word. They couldn't wait to get out. And I can still remember the day when that happened. We aren't to be discourteous. We're to treat each other in love. We're to treat these people with love. But remaining firm in what we believe. Remaining strong in Christ as our firm foundation. And then what does this all lead to? I have to finish quick because I've really gone over my time. So I apologize. What does this lead to? That we all grow up in all things into him who is the head. You know, when it comes to unity and when it comes to diversity of gifts in the, in the church, it's all about together growing up into Jesus. This defines the direction of our maturity. Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused with this one thing in aim that we all pull together and we do play our part, recognizing Christ as the head, that he will be glorified, we will be blessed, and the church will grow. Now, I've given you so much information here tonight, and I pray that just one thought from something, one of these verses, will help you in some way. But I think the bottom line is what Paul is saying. I've taught you about Christ. Now live him. Grow together. Be together, be united in heart, soul, and purpose. So may God bless you with these thoughts. I'm going to close our service and we're going to.